The sermon series that we're uh, in right now is entitled, Finding Ourselves in God's Story. Where do we find ourselves in God's story? You know, last Sunday we addressed God's story related to uh, being lost and found. And we uplifted that scripture from Isaiah that all like sheep have gone astray. That means all of us. So perhaps we understood God's story is God's story is a way of finding us in the midst of our lostness. Isn't that a comforting thought? That God will never cease to seek us out, especially when we're lost. And today the gospel reading is a parable about two very different men. And, and it centers on a prayer uh, that both of them are conducting. Today we'll be talking about the Pharisee and the tax collector who went to the temple to pray. So let's first look at these two individuals and get an idea um, about who they were, particularly in the context, uh, in the culture uh, that this scripture comes out of. The Romans wanted to wring everything they could out of um, the, the citizens, especially the Jews. And so um, they put taxation in place that was certainly not fair. And they sought out tax collectors from among the Jews who knew the people who also got the bid by saying, we can get more money out of our people than anyone else. And they did. And so the local citizens hated the tax collectors. They saw the tax collectors as really traitors of, of their own people. The Romans, on the other hand, the oppressors of the, the people, they didn't trust the tax collectors either because they knew they were conniving cheats. They, they were the one who, ones who employed them. And, and so the tax collector was a very lonely person. Not, not many friends. Of course, we remember Zacchaeus was a tax collector, right? And the little man had to climb up in a tree just to escape the crowd when Jesus came by. And we also need to be reminded, too, that Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, was a tax collector. When you look at the disciples Jesus surrounded himself with, you see a hodgepodge of people from the culture some of whom you'd classify as lost, that Jesus had a place among his closest confidants. You know, on the other hand, the Pharisees were really esteemed religious leaders. They were respected to some degree, but they also were known as being those who were, were, were pretty um, uh, high on themselves. We'll just put it that way. Uh, they, they had an arrogance about them in their practice, their way of practicing faith that, that kind of put them on a pedestal, if you will, uh, that, that was a self-imposed pedestal. Uh, they had this uh, pious attitude. They, they were known as being morally straight. There's nothing wrong with that. And righteous people, there's nothing wrong with that. But what was wrong with the attitude of the Pharisees was that they always lorded it over people. And Jesus had some of his most pointed parables to the most religious people of his day, his own faith, the Pharisees. And I like to think that he, he, he did this because he knew the great potential that they had. 
He, he, he knew that their, their faith was something that was not only to be admired, but something that could be taught to others. And yet, they, they were so full of themselves for the most part that they never reached their fullest potential. But, but let's remember Nicodemus, who in the third chapter of John came to Jesus at night, was a Pharisee. He's also the one who joined Joseph a bear of Mathea and got the approval for Jesus to be buried in Joseph's grave and also brought those embalming uh, ointments with Joseph to the very tomb of Jesus. So whether we're talking about Pharisees or we're talking about tax collectors, we're not talking about people that Jesus gave up on, that Jesus excluded. That's not part of God's story. We're talking about people that Jesus sometimes confronted and sometimes needed to give a message that they needed to hear in order to be made whole. The scene that we've just read about has the Pharisee by himself but in earshot of the crowd. In other words, he's praying to an audience and the audience is not necessarily God. And, and he wears his robes and his finery, and he's identified himself as a, a Pharisee. And here's how Eugene Peterson uh, says that the Pharisee prayed. I thank you, God, that I am better than the thieves, the rogues, adulterers, and garden variety riffraff who gather here on Temple Mount. I am confident that I believe all the right things and I try to be over the top in doing the right things. Especially I want to thank you that I'm not like that tax collector standing over there in the shadows. You know, you can just imagine when he got to the point about the tax collectors, he raised his voice so the tax collector could hear. I'm not like the tax collector. And indeed, the tax collector was perhaps off by himself too and was not speaking loudly. As Donna read the scripture, he pounds his chest as, as a sign of repentance. And he has his eyes downcast. His humility has crossed the bar. It's, it's a sense of low self-esteem, not just humility. He, he's, he's feeling a sense of shame and guilt. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, I want to say that sometimes uh, um, we don't like talking about sin. We don't like referring to ourselves as a sinner. But, but we are. We all like sheep have gone astray. Today we celebrate Holy Communion and we're reminded that God's forgiveness is for us too. But we'll first confess our sin and realize that we are in need of God's grace, right? Jesus concludes this story by saying the tax collector went home justified that day, but not the Pharisee. Jesus puts it like this. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The behavior of the tax collector was superior to the behavior of the Pharisee. And the story's core meaning focuses 
on the flaw of the Pharisee, which is not just pride, but it's pride taken to another level of arrogance over what I've done, what I do. You know, I want to talk this morning um, briefly about pride and a healthy pride. There, there is a healthy pride that I don't think the Bible is talking against. In, in Philippians, the second chapter, Paul said this, and I think this is key for us to understand when we look at what is healthy pride and what's unhealthy pride. Do nothing from self-ambition or conceit, but in humility. Regard others as better than yourself. You, you know, in a few weeks, we'll have uh, our God and Country celebration. And it has been um, a tradition for a few years that, that we will hear sung um, and probably sing along. I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the people who died who gave that right to me. You know, that, that, that's something that it, it, it's a pride. It speaks of a pride, but it, it's a healthy pride. It's an acknowledgement of the gift of God in our country. And that sense of, of pride concerning our country is, in my opinion, a healthy pride. I'm proud to be a parent. In fact, uh, have I told you that I have two grandchildren? I'm proud to be a grandparent. In fact, I'm really loving that. And you know, there's nothing wrong with, with being proud of your children, your grandchildren, being proud of your role as an aunt or an uncle, being proud of your role as a mentor. Because that focus is on, it's on the other, isn't it? It's on the children. It's on that one that you influence. You know, today is actually called Pride Sunday throughout the country. And, and in, here in our own city, for the month of June, they'll fly flags and celebrate um, LGBTQ pride. Now, this is a healthy pride concerning a positive self-esteem that we've missed out on in the past and felt like we needed to accentuate. To accentuate one who's created to be a, a person with, with, a, with a healthy self-esteem. And, and I think that, that, that this is something that we can celebrate. Now, an unhealthy pride, on the other hand, is a pride of fixing... Um, it's an arrogance to be overly self-confident, this kind of pride, uh, to believe that you can do no wrong. Now, that's a pride that crosses the line and the very pride that Jesus is addressing concerning the Pharisee. It is to believe that your equals in the human race are very rare. Pride as arrogance is uh, generally regarded by theologians as the root of all sin. I mean, this is a biggie. Arrogance is one of those deadly sins 
um, that, that is spoken about. The seven deadly sins we hear talk, guess what the number one is? It's pride, seen as unhealthy pride, seen as that arrogance that we're addressing. Arrogance has an insidious quality that masks reality. I want us to understand that. That's what we're talking about. And if left to grow unchecked and unexamined, it spreads and transforms into the worship of self. Arrogance not only hinders us from being open and honest, it damages the lives of those we love. Arrogance, further, is an attitude of I am right and you are wrong. And it undermines our relationship with others and our relationship with God. You know, the Pharisee, was he really praying to God? Or was he praying so that others would hear him and so that he could exalt himself? I mean, surely he didn't think that God didn't know who he was. God knew who he was. He didn't have to tell God who he was. But he wanted to make sure others knew how good he was. You know, a danger of prideful arrogance is that it makes us vulnerable to temptation. Prideful arrogance makes us vulnerable to temptation. The very moment that we believe ourselves incapable, incapable of being tempted is the moment we are most vulnerable. Unhealthy pride insists that I could never do that. And unfortunately, the moment that we think that we're incapable is the very moment that we find ourselves in danger of crossing that line into temptation. We have to have this attitude of humility related to temptation, that we have to say, God, it's only by your grace and by your help that I can stay away from temptation. We pray about that every Sunday in the Lord's Prayer. Let me not enter into temptation, we say to God. You know, I think that the deceiver's favorite temptation right now is to destroy friendships and relationships particularly using social media now listen to me for just a minute unhealthy pride leads to saying things that are intended to make a point without much consideration um, as to how others will feel about what we're sharing it's almost a dismissive attitude of, of, of the hurt or the pain that this might call, cause someone who reads a post. If there's anything that needs to have a pride check, I think it's our use of social media these days. Now, I want to give you just a, a, a little test that you can do when you make a post. It took me a while to learn this, but if, if you will... Think about what you want to say in a post or in whatever the social media uh, climate is, and you will, you will say a prayer to God about whether or not that post should be, in fact, made public. If the Holy Spirit says, 
you go right ahead and then you hurt them. They need to hear that. They'll get over it. Go ahead and do it. Then I'd be really surprised, wouldn't you? When we make matters of how we treat others a prayerful matter, and listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will never lead us to hurt another or to cause pain to another. Even when we are speaking prophetically, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will help us temper what we say and wrap it in love and care. You know, God's story is one that values humility. That's the point, right? If we find ourselves in the midst of God's story, then we will find ourselves valuing humility. And humility, I like to say, means down to earth. It comes from the root uh, hummus, right? Which means earth. And down to earth people know that they are not any better than anybody else. And don't find ourselves easy to criticize others. Humility is being down to earth. Jesus said, judge not. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. Humility knows God intimately. It doesn't just know about God, but Humility insists that we know God intimately. And when you know God intimately, it will be a delight to be humble. It will be a delight to always turn attention to God, not to ourselves. Humility is receiving mercy. And perhaps that's the best point of what the tax collector did in his prayer. It was the acknowledgement of himself and his shortcomings and his sin. While at the same time, he was asking God for mercy and believing God would deliver. In Micah 6, 8, one of the most popular verses in the Bible, what do we read? What does the Lord require of us but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly? Humbly with our God. You know, the lesson today from Jesus revolves around prayer. Prayer is revealing of who we are. The, the tax collector's prayer, let's face it, it wasn't even close to accentuating a healthy relationship with God. That prayer was intended to be heard by others, namely the tax collector. Whereas the tax collector's prayer focus was on his need for mercy and who he knew would deliver it. So much of God's story is about prayer. And I believe if we prayed more, we'd be led by the Holy Spirit to greater humility. When our focus is on God in prayer, we should not take the route of the Pharisee and uplift ourselves. God knows us better than we know ourselves. 
we should acknowledge who God is, should acknowledge who we are, and should pray for the things that we know are in keeping with God's will and our own desires and hopes and dreams. Bill Hybels, a couple of decades ago, wrote a book called Too Busy Not to Pray. Now, I know Bill Hybels has had his own um, uh, rough road of late, but this book really meant a lot to me in the simplistic way that it brings up the importance of prayer life. He said, think of prayer like Acts, the um, the, the word acts, the A, the C, the T, and the S. He said, the A is adoration. Tell God the truth about who God is to you. Gracious, almighty, loving, all-knowing, Father, worthy of our praise. And the, the C is confession. Tell God the truth about who you are. Uh, bring up those things that you know are your shortcomings or your sin. God knows them anyway. Name them. That's the first step toward health. And thanksgiving. Tell God what you're thankful for. Tell God what you're thankful for, recognizing that God is the giver of all good gifts. And we are his beloved children. And the S is supplication. Tell God what you need, what you desire. And, and pray that in, in keeping with the way Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done, God. Help me to understand your will. You know, today is Communion Sunday. We're going to have communion in just a moment. And before we have communion, we always confess our sins with, a, with a, a corporate confession. And I invite us during that time to also name in your heart those things you want to bring before God as confession. And we gather around the Lord's table, recognizing that our God is the one who always seeks us out, wants to find us, and wants to bring us home. We acknowledge God's sacrifice. And we also give God thanks and praise for forgiveness. I want to close with this story that was told years ago by Garrison Keeler. I really loved Garrison Keeler and the Prairie Home Companion. You, you know, the way he would weave Minnesota folklore about relatives and about truth and about faith fed my soul. I came across this old one I've shared with you before. Garrison Keeler says, It seems Uncle John was known for his lengthy, passionate prayers around the dinner table. And when Uncle John was called on to pray, he really did pray from his heart. Not like the Pharisee, from his heart. He certainly didn't, didn't pray in a way that would uplift himself. He he didn't beat his breast either, like the tax collector. But he couldn't help but cry every time he prayed. Uncle John would always adore God, always confess his sin, and was always thankful, especially for the cross of Jesus. 
He would always bring his prayer to the passion of the cross of Jesus. When he did, he would always, without fail, begin to cry. And as he talked about the Lord's death and our forgiveness, it became very personal. It became very emotional to him. And most everyone became very uncomfortable, especially if they were outsiders to the family and had never heard Uncle John pray before. (laughs) The story goes that the new pastor of the Lutheran church and his family were coming over for Sunday dinner And Garrison Keillor said it was the family's first time with the new clergy family in town. And the unspoken question, the fear that we all had in the family as we gathered around the table was who mama would call on to pray. Surely it wouldn't be Uncle John. But Keillor said mama was um, perhaps the only one in the family who wasn't really upset by Uncle John's prayers at all. So she called on Uncle John. And Uncle John did just that, just like he always did. When he got to the cross and the passion of Christ, he began to blubber and he began to cry uncontrollably, not quietly, but emotionally and with passion. He prayed thanksgiving over God's forgiveness and redemption and all that the cross of Christ means to us. When he was finished, sometime later, wide-eyed guests knew that this household, and particularly Uncle John, was a little different. Garrison said, a lot of people can thank God for the passion of Jesus on the cross. And what happened there? But Uncle John, Uncle John never got over it. May we never get over what the Lord has done for us. May we exalt God and godliness in all that we do. May we humble ourselves like Uncle John and never get over God's love. And God's forgiveness and God's seeking us out and have a thankful heart for it all. Amen.